But this question of fear, we're all afraid of it. And there are things in relationship to this fear that you and I have to recognize. That if you trust in God and let Him be your guide and strength, you won't have that fear. And your fear is in relationship to your trust. As your faith in God gets stronger, your fear dissipates. And as your faith in God gets weaker, your fear arises. You want to have fear dissipated and removed? Then you rise up and hold up the name of the living God and look to Him to undertake for you, and He will. It's our faith that brings victory. It's our faith that casts out fear and enables us to put our trust in the blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We will worship the man of Galilee who went to a cross 2,000 years ago. And no one can take his place. No one will intercede or interfere. We will not permit it. And so it is we have faith without fear. Faith over fear. Uh, I, I call this one today, How to Win Over Worry. And that message, um, I don't even know who gave that, uh, is very poignant. Uh, faith over fear and where we need to take our fears. And this is certainly a day and age where fear and worry are running rampant. So it's very timely, uh, the message today and what we're dealing with. But uh, last Sunday, we had our picnic. We had our picnic. And I was talking with uh, Jason, who's um, in California right now. Pray for him. Um, he makes it back from that state. But uh, <coughs> I was talking with him and he said, you know, I think that this, this little church is very blessed. And I said, well, I agree, but why do you think that this church is blessed? And he said, you know, we've had disgusting weather all, all week long. It's been like triple digits. And I was looking at the weather and it was going to be super hot or it was going to be raining, one of the two. And I didn't know what it was going to be. And of course, it's been disgusting this week. And, but when we had our picnic, we had about a four-hour window of just perfect weather. It was wonderful. It was great. Um, and I had the best barbecued beans I've ever had in my life. <laughs> <laughs> he made the ribs and he put ribs in the beans. It was like a meal. It was glorious. I loved it. Um, and then Brianna, my daughter Brianna, got baptized, which was really cool. So it was just kind of a special day uh, all the way around. And uh, I do believe uh, that we were blessed and it was just, you know, God's kind of smiling on us last week, giving us a window to, to have a good picnic on. But we covered a topic that really is a big hurdle for most people in America today, and that's just contentment. Uh, being content with what we have, uh, not being greedy. We're very thing-oriented by nature. We just are. Um, and as Christians living in this materialistic culture, we get caught up in it. We get swept up in it just like everybody else does. Uh, so we have to ask the question of ourselves quite often, where is my treasure? Like, where do I find my treasure? Is it, is it here in earthly things that are going to be here today and gone tomorrow? Or is it going to be in a place where it's incorruptible, where it's going to be waiting for us when we get there? Um, you know, there's the parable that Jesus told, and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And he told the story about the treasure in the field, right? And how the guy was walking through the field, and he basically stumbled over this treasure chest. And back then, they didn't have banks, 
right? And so what people would do when they would get valuables, when they would get, you know, jewelry or whatever they had money, they didn't want to keep it in their home in case they got burgled. So they would dig it, you know, they would bury it in the ground, just like, you know, pirates did, I suppose. And they would bury it in the field and they would come back for it later. Well, evidently, whoever buried it there was gone or had forgotten about it or whatever. And this guy just stumbles across it. So he goes and he sells everything he has so that he can buy this field. He buys the whole field, gives up everything he has for the treasure that's in the field. And the point of that story is you and I are the treasure that's in the field. The field symbolizes the world, right? In the scriptures, the field always, you know, symbolizes um, the world. And the only person that gave up everything, the only person that divested himself of everything that he had, everything that he, you know, had inside of him was Jesus. He came to earth to purchase the treasure. He bought the field, he bought the world for the treasure that was in it. You and I, we were his treasure. And that's where um, his treasure was in you and me, his creation, right? And our treasure doesn't need to be in earthly things. Our treasure doesn't need to be in the world. Our treasure needs to be in the heavenly places because of the one who redeemed us, the one who came here, who gave up everything um, because we were the treasure. Um, And we talked about uh, having a good eye. The Jewish people would talk about having a good eye. It didn't have anything to do with vision. It had to do with being generous. And if you were open-handed, uh, open-hearted with what God had given you, um, then you had a good eye. And conversely, if you had a bad eye, Solomon called it an evil eye, then you were somebody who was chasing after material wealth. You were blind to the concerns of others. You only cared about building your own little kingdom here on earth. And the problem with that is that there's not enough time to build your own little kingdom here on earth. Okay, lots of people have tried and they have all failed. They have not been able to take it with them. Uh, They may have made a name for themselves in the history books, but they are collecting dust. And if their treasure was not in heaven, then, um, you know, they're going to be eternally separated and punished for that. Um, But we need to have an open heart and an open hand towards other people. Need to have a good eye and be generous towards them with what God has given us. Um, You know, the world says life is short. Grab everything you can. That's what the world says, basically. The one that dies with the most toys wins. Uh, But Jesus would say, yes, life is short, so make sure that your treasure is somewhere where it cannot be taken away from you. And lastly, Jesus talked about we can't serve two masters, right? We're either going to be a servant of God or we're going to be a slave to sin. Uh, We can't serve God and chase after money, chase after material wealth and possessions. You just can't do it. Now, God may bless us materially, may bless us financially. Nothing wrong with that. That's a huge blessing. But it comes with it, the responsibility to sow into the kingdom. It's not to be hoarded. It's not to be flaunted. It's not to be trusted in. Um, We're to use it for his purposes. See, both poor people and rich people, regardless of where you fall, we all have our own spiritual problems. Um, The one spiritual trap is in trusting in riches, right? Or thinking that you're self-sufficient. Look what I've done on my own. That's a spiritual trap. The other end of that spectrum is a false insecurity that God is not going to provide for you, that he's not a good provider based on whatever your economic status is. And so two extremes that we can fall into traps spiritually of either trusting or distrusting, trusting in ourselves or distrusting the Lord that he has provided for us. Um, But giving, which is really what we talked about, um, helps us to rearrange our priorities because we need to have our minds on things above and not obsessed with things here below. Um, But all of us at some point have fallen into the trap of being overly concerned about the things of this world, 
We've all fallen into that. And so right after Jesus talks about treasures, um, not storing up for yourself treasures here on earth, he moves on to more practical uh, matters of daily living. For the majority of people that were listening to Jesus, um, and for the majority of us, um, hopefully all of us, chasing wealth was not that big of a problem, okay? That wasn't their main issue. Uh, Nobody was really chasing, trying to be rich, um, a king of this world, so to speak. Uh, They were more concerned with just how to make ends meet, really just put food on the table. That was really their main concern. And so Jesus moves on from, you know, check your heart, make sure that what you're desiring, what takes up the most amount of real estate in your mind, what drives you isn't earthly things. It needs to be treasure in heaven, and here's how you do that. Um, Two, you know, God providing for you in a very practical way. Um, this is, like I said, good timing because right now, uh, just necessities, gas, groceries, things like that are front and center in almost everybody's mind. So very timely message in talking about God meeting our practical needs. Um, let's read what Jesus has to say about it. This is in Matthew 6. I'm going to round out the chapter today. This is verses 25 through 34. And he says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." Uh, It would probably surprise a lot of Christians um, to realize how big of a sin worry is. I don't think a lot of people view worry as sin. They think it is just thinking about the future, about trying to plan, about trying to be prepared. But in reality, worry is a sin because it's distrusting the promises and the provision of God is what it's doing. And yet this is a sin that probably a lot of us commit most often is the sin of worry or of being anxious, fearing. So today we're going to look at four different reasons why we, as Jesus followers of all people, uh, shouldn't give in to worry and anxiety. The first is that worry makes us unfaithful because of who we serve. We talked about this last week, that if you make Jesus the Lord of your life, if we are totally submitted to him, it is an all or nothing proposition. You have to be all in with that. There are no truly part-time followers of Christ. You're either full-time or you're not. So if we're all in on this, which is what Jesus requires, then we have to choose to become bond slaves, right? We choose to become a slave of Christ, a servant of God. And at that point, all of our life is submitted to him. And nothing justifies being anxious or worried because of who we serve, because of who our master is. Our whole life needs to be wrapped up in him and trusting of him that he's going to provide every single thing that we need and that he is in control of everything. Our word worry uh, comes from a German word, old German word, uh, vergen, which made me chuckle because it makes me think of the Swedish chef. Um, vergen. 
uh, which actually translates, the word in German translates into choke or strangle. And that's literally what worry and anxiety does. It, it strangles or chokes the life out of you. Uh, it's a mental or emotional strangulation, and we've touched on this before, but um, it is the cause of lots of unexplained illnesses. I mean, people go to the doctor and they're like, there's really nothing wrong with them physically. So I don't really understand what it is. It's stress, it's anxiety, it's fear, it's worry, which creates all kinds of physical problems in our bodies. As far as I know, I haven't seen a, a headstone that says that this person died of worry. Uh, but we have the saying, right? You're going to worry yourself to death, right? It has very real complications, causes all kinds of health issues. Uh, there's an interesting illustration that I read this week uh, about our perception of problems and issues in life and how it can grow into a major fear. One glass of water once vaporized, if you vaporize one glass of water, it can cover multiple city blocks in fog, a dense fog about 100 feet deep, just one glass of water. And that's kind of how fears operate in our mind. We have this one thing in our mind, and as we give it more power, as we give it more room, it begins to grow. And as it grows into this huge cloud, there's all kinds of uncertainty, all kinds of danger, all kinds of worry that builds in our mind. I read this, anxiety is a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. All Satan has to do is encourage that thin stream of fear. Get us meditating on it instead of taking those things to the Lord. And before long, it spills into every other area of our life. Um, we've probably experienced that. One thing that concerns you, and it colors every other thing that's going on in your life, every other area. And uh, we've all probably met somebody like that. It seems like it's not just one thing. It's never just one thing. It's always multiple things because they're all attached to each other. So when we start to worry or be anxious about one thing, everything else starts getting filtered through that. Most of the time, it just boils down to a lack of control, right? Lack of control, um, lack of faith, because if we feel like we have no control over this one area in our lives, then we begin to doubt if God is in control and if he can control those areas in our life. Um, we need to rest assured that our master controls everything. Uh, we hear people say from time to time that, well, that didn't take God by surprise. It's usually the people that didn't get taken by surprise that are saying that. <laughs> um, but it's true. We know that it did not take God by surprise. Uh, one of the views of the world is that God doesn't know what's happening just as we do, that he's not omniscient. He's just trying to keep up as it all unfolds and that sometimes he doesn't keep up with everything. And so he's not really in control of everything, but that's not the God that we serve. And if we release things into his hands, into his control, if trials come our way, then it's for our good and for his glory. It's for our good and for his glory, whatever comes our way. Um, one of the best, um, most well-known stories in the Bible is the story of Daniel. And, you know, it's one that is great for Sunday school, but we don't tend to talk about it too much in big church because we know the story, right? But we hear it so often that it tends to lose its impact. And I just thought it was applicable today. Daniel, when they, when they were in exile in Babylon, Daniel had been promoted to head over all the wise men in the entire empire because God had given him the ability to interpret dreams, gifts of interpretation. So the king had placed him second in command, but all the other wise men were jealous of Daniel. They were trying to figure a way to get rid of him 
um, because they did not like the favor that was on him because of the God that he served. And so they came up with this plan because they knew that Daniel was a devout servant of his God, of Jehovah, but also that the king had a huge ego. So they were going to try to capitalize on both of these. And so they devised this plan um, to create a law that for 30 days, nobody could pray to anybody else but the king. You couldn't pray to any God. You had to make your petitions of the king himself. And so they said, this will be great. We can get Daniel because he prays three times a day. And this will be a way that we can, that we can trip him up. And when Daniel heard this, when he heard that this law was, was being written up, he went into his room to pray. <laughs> he didn't let that bother him at all. Um, this is probably a really good example of obeying God's law rather than man's law. Um, when man created a law that was going to be detrimental for him personally, he said, I'm going to go, I'm going to go pray. I'm going to go serve the Lord. I'm going to do what he has required me to do. He had an open window, of course, that looked out towards Jerusalem and he would pray three times a day. And with that open window, that was going to make him an easy target. And they knew that he knew that, but he wasn't going to let him sway, um, his mindset. And so they take their evidence to the king. Daniel is praying to his God. Now in that empire, uh, they had what they could call uh, the law of the Medes and Persians, and they could invoke the law of the Medes and Persians, and they could have a certain law written that could not be revoked, couldn't be changed even by the king himself. Once it was signed off on, it was permanent. And he had signed off on that, and once he found out uh, the scheme that all these other wise men had put together to try to trip up Daniel, it says that he was greatly distressed, and he labored all day until the sun went down, trying to figure out some type of loophole to try to save Daniel, but he couldn't. Couldn't be changed, so he had to abide by it and throw Daniel into the lion's den. And we're told that when that happened, it wasn't Daniel that was freaking out. It was the king who was freaking out. It says that he fasted and prayed all night for Daniel. He could not sleep because of his worry and anxiety. Now, Daniel, who's writing this account, doesn't, doesn't mention that he himself was freaked out, that he was full of worry, that he was full of anxiety and concern. Now, was he? I don't know. I would have been completely freaked out being thrown into a den of lions, okay? But listen to what the king says. The next morning, the next morning, the king runs to the den and he says, has your living God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the mouths of lions? And I just thought that was interesting because the king says, your living God, not just a God, but your living God, whom you serve continually. And of course, God sent the angel to protect Daniel by closing the mouths of the lions. He was saved because of whom he served continually. There was no part-time uh, service to the Lord. He was all in. Then there was the great role reversal, right? He got pulled out and all the people that wanted to do him in got thrown in to the lions and it said that the lions got him before they even hit the ground. And... There are people right now that want to do us in, that want to trip you up. And what we need to do, our bodies may not be saved. Our temporary bodies may not be saved from, from terrible things, okay? But our souls will be saved eternally. We are eternally secure with whom we serve. But those who, you know, are trying to trip us up or do us in, those who reject God and rebel against God will have a day of judgment. It is coming as sure as our salvation. Judgment is coming for those who reject him. Not only is worry unfaithful because of our master, but it's also unnecessary because of who our father is. God controls everything, but he also provides everything that we need. Um, 
It's not everything we want, but it's everything that we need. And there's a lot to want in our culture today. It's easy to want. He provides, says he provides food for the birds of the air. Uh, he provides food for animals, but no animal was ever made in the image of God. So if he, create, if he you know, provides food for the animals, he's going to provide for you and me as well. Um, and I mentioned this is timely because there's a lot of fear and anxiety being pushed by the media that there's going to be food shortages, right, in the near future. Better stock up on food supplies, better stock up on the, you know, non-perishable food items because there's going to be shortages. Farmers can't get the fertilizer they need, right, to grow their crops in the same amounts that they normally do. There's all these, you know, um, accidents and problems with food processing plants across the country. And so there is this great fear of food shortages, not just here in America, but across the country, which is really uh, more of the concern. But our Father is going to provide for us. We're going to trust in Him to provide every single need that we have. Um, I thought this was interesting. You know the only time that animals ever overeat is when they're taken care of by humans. God provides everything they need. Not more, not less, everything they need. The only time they overeat is when they're taken care of by people. We freak out about not having enough, but God will provide everything that we need. Uh, let the world worry about food shortages. We will trust in the Lord. Amen? If you've ever heard of George Mueller, um, if you haven't heard of him, you really should look him up. Um, I said something last week about you got to look up some of these people, some of these people of faith. George Mueller was a great man of faith because he was a great man of prayer. And he trusted the Lord, his father, to provide his needs. Uh, he lived in the 1800s. Um, it was interesting because he was actually a contemporary of uh, Charles Dickens. And they lived at the same time in England. Uh, Mueller was saved as an adult. And he went to Bible college. And when he graduated, uh, a small church there in England hired him. And they were going to pay him a pretty decent salary. And then he found out how they were going to accomplish that. What they were going to do to provide his salary is they were actually going to rent the first couple rows in the church to the wealthy people, to the wealthy members. So if you were wealthy and you wanted to sit up front, you had to pay for it. And that's how they were going to provide his salary. But then he heard about it and he put a stop to it. He's like, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to fleece the flock. Okay, we're going to feed the flock, and he's going, to, you know, he's going to trust God to provide for his needs. And he did. God provided for him. Never missed a meal, never missed a payment on his house. Um, it's kind of interesting. I don't know how often the church in England actually read their Bibles. Maybe it was because they were in all Latin. I don't know. But, you know, it specifically says in James that you're not to prefer the rich people over the poor people. You're not supposed to give them preference. So why in the world were they coming up with these types of schemes to... Uh, cater to rich people. I don't know. But anyway, when he heard it, he shut it down. And then one day as he's walking the streets of England, he's seeing all of these children, these homeless children everywhere. They had a huge homeless problem. They had all kinds of poor houses. This is where Charles Dickens comes in because Charles Dickens, one of his big, you know, initiatives was to bring light and, you know, knowledge to the fact that there are all these poor people that are living and being taken advantage of in England, especially the children. And he showed Mueller, uh, he put on him this burden for the children, and to start orphanages for these children to get them taken care of. But Mueller didn't have any money. He didn't have anything. And so he just started to pray to God, God, you put this burden on me. I'm praying for a building. I'm praying for people to work in it, for furniture, for clothing, for food, all of it. I don't have any of it. If you have this burden, if you are guiding me this way, you're going to have to provide in this way. And God did provide in that way miraculously. 
And there was one day, I, like I said, you have to look him up because I can't give the whole thing here. It's incredible to learn about his life. But one day, uh, there was a house mother who came to George Mueller. She said, all 300 kids, all 300 kids in the, in the orphanage are dressed and they're ready, but there's nothing to eat. They're ready for breakfast, but there's no food. We're all out. So he said, all right, get everybody into the dining hall, have them sit down. And he came in and he said a prayer and he thanked God for the food that they were about to receive, even though they had no food. That's a prayer of faith. And within a couple minutes, he gets a knock at the door. And it's the local baker, and he shows up, and he's like, I don't know why I couldn't sleep last night. I just had the feeling that you guys were going to need bread today. So I baked all these batches of bread. Can you guys use them? And so he smiled as they brought them in. And so not a few minutes later, there's another knock at the door, and the milk cart had broken down right outside the orphanage. The milkman comes up and he's like, listen, my cart broke down right outside. True story. The milk is going to spoil before they get here to fix the wheel. Can you guys use 10 cans of milk? 10 cans of milk to go with the bread that the breaker brought, enough to feed and, you know, thirst 300 kids. Quench the thirst of 300 kids. God provided in miraculous ways. That's one story of many of the ways that God provided for George Mueller. Um, and, you know, the Charles Dickens, you know, tie-in, he was so concerned over this thing, he just thought maybe it was another poorhouse, so he went up to his orphanages to check them out, to make sure that these were legit. And after he got there, he saw the way that these kids were provided for, the way that God had provided for Mueller and all these children, um, they became actually pretty good friends, uh, because they shared a common vision, a common goal that God had placed on him. Um... Over 10,000 orphans passed through his care over the years, George Mueller. 10,000 orphans. Um, now, what would happen when these kids aged out, when they were old enough to live on their own, George Mueller would pray with them, and he would put a Bible in their right hand and a coin in their left hand. And he would pray with them, and he would say, if you hold on to this, what's in your right hand, God will always make sure that there's something in your left hand. Never let go of his word, never let go of the Lord, and he will always make sure that you're provided for. You will have what you need. <laughs> Sometimes we trust the Lord with our eternal souls, but we doubt him to provide for our basic daily needs. George Mueller was a father to the fatherless because of who his father was. Um, Psalm 103.13 tells us, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, that he remembers that we are dust. When we worry, uh, especially in front of unbelievers, we strike a blow to God's love and God's integrity. Because he has sworn to provide for those who love him. It's saying to others that we're not sure that our father is trustworthy. And worry and anxiety are really unnecessary because of who our Father is. There's so many stories of provision. One of the problems that we have, honestly, in America is we are rarely in a position where God has to meet a need, and so we don't see that um, all the time. And, you know, I prayed before we started this, um, before we started Bethany, uh, and I told you guys about that period where we fasted and prayed, and we're trying to kind of figure out what God had for us. And... Uh, I was like, God, you know, I, I don't really want to pray that we need to, that we want to be in need. Uh, that's a scary thing to pray for. God put me in a situation where I'm in need, but I want my children, I want the people around me to see you meet a need that I can't meet on my own, 
right? I don't want it to be something that, you know, dad did this or Nathan did this in his own strength, through his job, through his ingenuity, whatever it was. I wanted to see God provide, and uh, it has been. It's been amazing to see God do uh, things over the last year and a half, specifically here in Bethany, that we couldn't have done in our own strength. When we worry, we strike a blow to God's love and integrity, but he is a good father. Uh, And that leads us to faith. Worry and anxiety are unfaithful because of who we serve. Um, They're unnecessary because he's our father, and they're unreasonable because of our faith. Worry is unreasonable because of our faith. Um, Now, we've actually been through both Galatians and Habakkuk, but we read in both of those books that the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Who are the just, and what does that mean, right? The just, this is going to sound really simplified, but the just are those who are justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. We're justified. We're saved. We're redeemed. We're forgiven. We're the ones that are living by grace through faith. That's how we're saved. We're the ones that have a faithful and true master. We're the ones that have an all-loving father who provides for us. And as a result, we can walk by faith and not by fear because of who our father is. When we worry, we look just like the world. When we worry, when we have anxiety, when we have fear, we look just like the world. Uh, For the worldly person, I've said this before, for the worldly person, this is as good as it gets. All of this here is as good as it gets for the worldly person. Um, That's why they want to get all they can. That's why their religion really is comfort and materialism. Because if there's anything that threatens that, they begin to become anxious and worry. But for the Christian... This is as bad as it gets. Right now, on this earth, is as bad as it gets. And because of that, we can live with a different set of priorities. We can live with a different set of um, ideals, values, because of um, our future. Priorities that look way different than the world's. Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom and all of his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto us. All what things? All of our necessities. Food, shelter, Clothing, all of those things will be provided for us. We do not have to worry about them when we're seeking him first. Because when people, think, when people seek things and not the kingdom, they're going to be discontent. If we seek things instead of the kingdom, you're going to be discontent. Because eventually, whatever that is, even when people get the things that they want, they become discontent because those things lose their luster. There's always going to be something new. That house is going to need to be painted eventually, or that car is going to be in the shop eventually. You're not going to be content for long if you're seeking the things and not the kingdom. But if you want to be content, you have to seek the right things. We have to seek the things of the one of whose we are. We are the fathers. We need to be seeking his things, his righteousness, his kingdom. Can't be worrying about the things that we might lose or the things that we may not be able to acquire in this life. And we seek the kingdom when we seek relationship with the Lord, uh, talking with him, hearing from him in his word. That's how we seek the kingdom. And to seek the kingdom is to seek Jesus, just plain and simple. Uh, Jesus talked about the kingdom all the time. Now, if I'm trying to find a place, if I'm wondering about a place that I want to go, I want to talk to, I want to be with somebody who's already been there, okay? Um, We're going to be going to Florida, where these guys have been. And I want to talk to them about how it was, because that's where I want to go. Um, And in Luke 17, Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, okay, Jesus, when is the kingdom of God coming? You keep talking about the kingdom. When is the kingdom of God coming? 
Now, this is super important because the people of that day were looking for a Messiah that was going to be a military king, somebody that was going to set them free from the bonds of the Romans and set up a physical kingdom here on earth. And this is how Jesus responds. He says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, or as we might say, within you. The kingdom of God is within you. When you're born again, you are now a citizen of the kingdom, and the king takes up residence inside you. You're part of the kingdom, and the king is living inside of you. Uh, Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. When I become saved, it's no longer me living in the flesh. It's Christ living inside of me. Um, My flesh is dead. It's been crucified. I am now alive in Christ. He's the one that I'm living for. I'm living for the kingdom. And lastly, worry is unwise because of our future. Uh, Some people are plagued with worry about the past. They're plagued with anxiety about the past. And some people are kind of paralyzed by worry about the the present, what's going on right now. And for people that aren't anxious about the past or aren't worrying about the present, they'll reach into the future and start worrying about something there. There was a a man who had become very sick with worry and it controlled his whole life, uh, what he did and, and where he went and how he spent his money. And then one day he was out walking around and a friend saw him And he looked completely different, uh, almost carefree. And so his friend went up to him and he's like, man, you know, you look like you've changed. You know, what's the difference? Why, what's, you know, why aren't you worrying like you normally do? And he said, well, I tell you what, um, I hired somebody to worry for me. I was done worrying. I used to worry over everything, but I hired somebody to worry for me. So now they take care of all my worries. He's like, well, that's weird. Like, how much do you pay somebody to worry for you? He said, well, I pay him $4,000 a month. He said, $4,000 a month? You can't afford that. How do you pay him $4,000 a month to worry for you? He said, hey, that's his worry, not mine. (laughs) Worry does some strange things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. We have enough on our plates just trying to take care of today. But who knows what tomorrow will bring? We need to just focus on today, not reach into the future, because we know what our future holds in him. Uh, most of you have heard of Corey Tinboom. Um, if you haven't, you should look her up too. So uh, George Mueller, Corey Tinboom. And she was born in 1892, and she lived in the Netherlands. Her family actually were hiding Jews in their home to hide them from the Nazis. And so they were hiding Jewish people to help them out. They eventually were discovered. And they were sent to a concentration camp. So not just the Jewish people that they were hiding, they actually got sent to the concentration camp. And she writes in her famous book, The Hiding Place, about her experiences in the camp and how she was able to find joy in the midst of atrocious circumstances because of who she served, because of who her father was, and because of what her future was going to be, where she was going to be ending up. And this woman who experienced horrible things um, once said, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It empties today of its strength. It doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It just empties today of its strength. It doesn't help you escape evil. It makes you unfit to cope with it when it arrives, is what it does. We need our strength for today. Uh, And coincidentally, that's how God dispenses his grace. He dispenses his grace day by day uh, as it's needed, not as it's anticipated. So we go to him daily, and he gives out grace daily. 
Um, no worry about tomorrow. Isaiah 26 speaks about that day that we're all looking forward to. It says, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. There's no need to worry because of who our master is, because of who our father is, because of our faith in him, and because we know where our future lies. In our small group, we've been going through this book uh, for Psalm 23, and it just takes little bitty pieces of Psalm 23 and breaks it down um, so that we can really grasp what David is writing about as a shepherd. And this week's portion that we were going to go over uh, is he anoints my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now, I always thought that was strange terminology of our heads being anointed with oil. Um, I didn't necessarily like that analogy of somebody pouring oil on my head. But David here is writing not from the perspective of a king, not even from the perspective of a shepherd, but from the perspective of a sheep. He's writing about the shepherd, but he's writing from the perspective of a sheep because that's what we all are. We're all sheep. That's what God, that's what Jesus calls us as sheep. And there's a reason why he writes about anointing his head with oil. In the summertime, what the shepherds would do is they would take the sheep and they would go up into the mountain areas. Uh, became very hot in the valley, obviously, and so it was one way to escape the heat. Um, also up in the mountains was where the best grazing was. And so they would take the sheep up there and then they could also escape the insects. As you guys know, summertime is bug season. And the shepherds would say that summertime is fly time. And the flies could drive the sheep to distraction, and they could become a huge nuisance to the sheep. Uh, we have a lake by our house, a pond, and if you go walking by the pond in the summertime at night and you're not paying attention, you will get a mouthful of flies. The flies are everywhere. You, they are so annoying. They're an annoyance to us, but they can really be problematic for the sheep. And one, one uh, fly in particular it was called, it's very descriptive, it's called the nasal fly. And what the nasal fly would try to do is it would try to lay its eggs in the mucousy parts of the sheep's nose, right? The nose is wet, mucousy. It would try to lay its eggs there. And if it could succeed in laying the eggs there, then they would hatch within a few days and they would start to make their way, the larvae would start to make their way up the nasal canal. And you can imagine after a few days, as those larvae start crawling up the nasal canal, it becomes a very big irritation to the sheep, and so what they begin to do is they will run into the brush. They will start banging their heads on trees and rocks, anything they can do to try to get relief from these flies, from these larvae that are now embedded into their skin. Um, some, in severe cases, some of the sheep have actually killed themselves, trying to get relief from these bugs that have, you know, inserted themselves up into, uh, well, it's up into their brain, really. Um, and... Because these flies were such a problem, they could actually send the entire flock into a panic. Um, they start running into all different kinds of places. Uh, a bunch of them could get stuck. They would stop grazing if it was really bad. Um, the little lambs wouldn't be able to feed because their moms wouldn't come out. Um, they were so paranoid. And it was a really bad situation for the flock, all because of some tiny flies. And we all have things that bug us. We all have things that bug us, things that annoy us and send us into a panic. And when we start running into the wrong places, instead of going to the shepherd, we just make things worse instead of better when we don't go to him. Worry and anxiety do that. The more room we give them in our minds, 
the bigger they become. And the more that we hang out with people uh, who simply find things to worry about, the worse it gets. And it's easy to find people nowadays who are uh, very willing to share with you the latest doom and gloom story, okay? So not only does anxiety eat you up, but it eats other people up if it starts to get spread around. Uh, and when these, starts, when these thoughts start crawling through your head, it can create all kinds of problems and drive you crazy. But the shepherd had a remedy. Uh, only careful attention from the shepherd uh, could really give them relief. And when there was the first sign of fly season, what the shepherd would do, um, this one in particular had a homemade uh, concoction of oil. Uh, by that way, I say olive oil, right, is what the shepherds would use. And then mix that with like sulfur and tar so that it would stick. And they would smear it all over the sheep's head. So they would smear it all over their nose, all over their ears, all over their head. And it was kind of like a natural bug repellent. And it kept the flies away from them. And they said that there was immediately a change in the demeanor of the sheep. Immediately, because they had relief from the flies. And in Scripture, oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Uh, when we read about oil um, and anointing oil in the Holy Spirit, it's symbolic of the, of the Holy Spirit. And application of the Spirit in our lives can give us peace from the daily frustrations and agitations that we all come up against. And Jesus actually encouraged his disciples to ask, the whole, to ask for the Holy Spirit from the Father. Uh, we just talked about it a few weeks ago in Luke 11, where Jesus um, was teaching his disciples about the Lord's Prayer. And then right after that, he talks about um, the, the neighbor, right? And he had an unexpected visitor, and he goes to his neighbor and bangs on his door, and it's the middle of the night, because uh, he doesn't have any food to give him. And his neighbor won't get up. He says, go away because I'm, you know, already in bed with my family. But because of the guy's persistence, he gets up to give him what he needs. And he says, how much more will your father, this is what he said, um, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? All we have to do is ask. Ask for the oil to be applied when you encounter aggravations in your life. Only the Spirit can give us the mind of Christ. If we trust in the Lord and we ask from the Lord, he will give us the Holy Spirit. Um, and since the troubles that we face are daily, I think we need a daily, you know, fresh application of the Spirit in our lives. Now, once you're saved, once you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You do. Um, but are we praying for a daily refreshment of his spirit, of his power in our lives to counter, counteract the effects of all the things that are bugging us? Um, and when we walk in the spirit, then we produce the fruits of the spirit, right? Which are the opposite of worry and anxiety and fear. They are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all fruits of the spirit. But first we have to go to the shepherd. We have to go to the shepherd, admit that we cannot handle these things on our own. We need the oil of the Spirit applied to our lives, and we'll be surprised how quickly our attitudes, our demeanors will change when we submit to the shepherd, allow him to anoint us with his peace. Immediately, we will no longer be paralyzed by anxiety and fear because our shepherd is taking care of us. A simple matter of faith and acceptance um, when we go to the shepherd. Um, I read this week that uh, there's a guy, Dr. Stanley Jones, said this. He said it very well. I am inwardly fashioned for faith, not for fear. Fear is not my native land. Faith is. I'm not made to... I am so made that worry and anxiety are sand in the machinery of life. 
Faith is the oil. I live better by faith and confidence than by fear, doubt, and anxiety. In anxiety and worry, my being is gasping for breath. These are not my native air, but in faith and confidence, I, be, I breathe freely. These are my native air. A John Hopkins University doctor says, we don't know why it is that worriers die sooner than non-worriers, but that is a fact. But I, who am simple of mind, think I know. We are inwardly constructed in nerve and tissue, brain cell and soul for faith and not for fear. God made us that way. To live by worry is to live against reality, at least the spiritual reality, to live in fear. Come back up. Um, There's a funny story about two explorers uh, who were on a jungle safari and all of a sudden, a ferocious lion jumped out in front of them. And one of them whispered to the other one. He said, remember what we read in that book about wild animals, that if you look it in the eye and don't run, that it'll go away. And the other one said, well, sure, you've read that book. And I've read that book. But as the lion read that book, and we know that Satan is called a roaring lion, and he has read the book. He knows what his end is going to be. He knows what our end is going to be. Um, God is faithful and true. Our future is secure in him. So there's no need to worry. Actually, I read this um, earlier this morning, and I wanted to, to pull it up because I just thought it was so uh, appropriate. This is A.W. Tozer. It says, A man can die of starvation knowing all about bread. And a man can remain spiritually dead while knowing all of the historic facts of Christianity. God is going to give us everything we need, but then we have to accept it. Okay? He's given us his word, but we have to read it. He's given us brothers and sisters in Christ, but we have to fellowship with each other. Right? He's given us what we need, but then again, we need to accept it. He's given us salvation. He's given us peace. He's made provision, but we have to incorporate that into our lives. There's a responsibility on our end. All we have to do is take hold of it. And as I was preparing this week, uh, I was just reminded of this. Um, you're going to be really happy, Bob, because I asked uh, Elena to do a hymn. Um, <laughs> it's a really good one, too. Um, because he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Okay? Um, it's a very well-known hymn, but it's true. How do we face tomorrow? When we get to situations in our lives where we feel like we can't go on, um, we just have to look at where we put our hope. If we're putting our help in ourselves, if we're putting it in people, we're going to be let down. The world does that, and that's why they turn to all other kinds of things that are destructive because they don't have hope. Not the way that we do. We have a future. We have a hope in Jesus that he has provided. We just need to take hold of it. Amen. You still deserve it